We're going to jump into this today. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We've been on this journey looking at what Scripture says and what God has equipped us with. And the biggest thing that He's given us, this is our litmus test. Does it pass the sniff test when it comes to Scripture? The idea that you have, the doctrine you hold, the belief that system that's been engraved in you since you were a child, does it line up with Scripture? Does it go against Scripture? Is it a biblical basis? The thing is, is we have a lot of beliefs in this world today. We have a lot of beliefs with no reason for believing them other than we've been told them or we were once said it or we thought it or whatever the reasoning may be. We've never stopped to ask the question is, how do we know if it's true? That's true of Scripture as well. But we've talked about that before, but the thing is, is that we hold these beliefs when it comes to the ideas of God, and we've got this idea of a God in our head, and many times when you start to really drill down into a conversation with the person of who God is, you realize that this is a God that they have created, because it's not the God of Scripture. It's a God that they made in the image of themselves, or the image of somebody, or what they want to be true. And then no matter how bad you want to believe it, No matter how badly you want something to be true, your exertion, your enthusiasm, your excitement does not make something true. You can be super excited and wrong at the same time. I mean, let me give you an example, all right? I know it's a little ways out, but you all know what's coming next. It's football season. It's around the corner. And I know all of you good God-fearing people believe that Scott's going to turn it around this year. This is the year. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the year. And with great enthusiasm and passion, we will be standing there screaming. And really, we should just be praying not to lose again. Because we've said this is the year for 20 years. My son has to go on YouTube to see a good Nebraska football team. That's sad. It doesn't matter how excited we are for the season. It doesn't change the outcome. It doesn't change anything, really. It just means we're loud and a little more disappointed. It's really what it comes down to. You see, your enthusiasm and a belief does not make it right, does not make it so. The louder you speak does not make Dumb things sound less dumb. They're just amplified. And we've got that in the church today like I've never seen before. Call me crazy. The idea that all these Nebraska Kool-Aid drinkers, and I'm one of them, I, I, I believe it, I'm, I want it to be, I want it bad, I want it bad, okay? I want it bad. I don't know if I'm being clear or not. I know I'm not alone, but I want it bad. We're playing Oklahoma this year. I have every intention on being there. The last time I was in that stadium, all right? In Norman, Oklahoma. First of all, you had to count the combined about four rows of people to get one full set of teeth. That was a joke. There we go. Took a little bit, but it finally landed. Okay. Is that what it, that was that section? Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But I work alone, Stan, so that's, I got this. Okay. But it was Bo Pelini's first year, and in five minutes, we were down 35 to zero. Sam Bradford, behind that line, could have packed a four-course picnic lunch before a Nebraska defender came anywhere near him, how much time he had. And the worst part was, is after this bloodbath is going on, the OU fans, when we would get a first down, would turn and high-five me. And I just looked at them like, I don't need your pity. I don't want this. I don't want anything to do with this, you know? But we talk about that like the church has talked about the rapture, too. This has got what's coming soon. And your excitement for it doesn't move it up quicker. It doesn't doesn't change it. It's kind of like, if you hate football, God forgive you, your dread for the season doesn't change the outcome. Your emotions have nothing to do with reality, is really what I'm getting at. What you want to be doesn't necessarily be so, unless it lines up with truth. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 says, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You know, we read that quickly, but those are big, powerful words. This was not haphazardly that Paul is talking. That we are ambassadors, Christ's representative on this earth. And it's as if God himself, through us, is pleading for you. We implore on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. They're begging. Give your heart to Him. You see, we began to go down this journey looking what Jesus did because we hear the whole WWJD, what would Jesus do? We're to be like Him and all of that. And we look at that from a moral standpoint. How would Jesus respond in this scenario and all of that? When we began to look at His work, we noticed basically four things that He did. He taught, He preached, He healed, He died, and ultimately resurrected. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. His fame went throughout all Syria. They brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. They never had to come and ask, like, Jesus, if it be thy will, oh, Jesus, have mercy on me, for I am a good man, and I will give into the offering Oh, Jesus, I will support your ministry if you will only do this for me. None of that. These people came to him, and he did what he did because he had compassion on them. What else did he do? He died in Matthew 20, verse 27. It says, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. And just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the concept here is that Jesus taught, he preached, he healed, he ultimately died. He resurrected as the first fruits of our salvation, gave his life as the Passover lamb for you and I, and he lived his life as an example for us. Everything that moved Jesus on this earth, and even what brought Jesus to this earth, was summed up in one word, and that word is compassion. He had compassion on those, because inside of him lied the cure. The cure to sin, the cure to death, the cure to sickness and disease. All of these things lied inside of him. And if you were reading through the Gospels in the book of Acts, Jesus is the only person that you can look at as your example of how we should live. Because we should be teaching, we should be preaching, we should be healing, and we should be willing to die at any point in time. And we should be moved with that same compassion. The compassion that moves your heart and breaks your heart when you hear about a situation that somebody's in. When we hear about somebody who was just diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, and we're like, oh my goodness, that's so sad they have a young family. A young girl killed in Auburn a couple of weeks ago, and a car wreck, 21 years old, two babies. Everybody's heart is moved with compassion. The city is now doing a fundraiser for a memorial to help with their kids and all of these other things that are going on. Those are all wonderful things. Why do they do it? They have compassion, but the compassion needed to be prior to the accident. Do you know Jesus? Have you made him your savior? Every person that we meet can be the person killed in that car wreck. The next person diagnosed with cancer. The next person that's killed in a plane crash or whatever it may be, may be the person that you've been talking to for weeks and yet you never turn the conversation to anything that matters. All you talk about is how Scott's going to do it this year. Some of you don't. Shame. We read this last week, Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower. And verse 4 says, And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by parable. A sower went out to sow a seed, and he sowed, and some fell by the wayside. It was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured, and some fell on a rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up, and it choked it. And others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop of a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples asked him, saying, well, what does this parable mean? And he said, to you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that seeing they may see and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seeds of the word. And those by the wayside are the ones who hear, but then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear and receive the word with joy, but they have no root and they believe for a while and in time of temptation will fall away. And the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. 
So we talked about these four soils and this idea of how a sower is going out, he's planting seeds, but while he's planting those seeds, some fall here, some fall there. Not necessarily where he intended it to be, but because he was out there planting, some of it trickled into these other places. And these people would spring up, they would take it in, some of them the devil would come because they might become saved. And he's going to take that word from their heart. Others would allow the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, all of these other things that would just scorch it and not allow it to bring fruit to maturity. But yet some were good soil. And those are the ones who produced fruit. Now, the question is this. What is the point of this parable? Do you realize it has Less about the soils themselves and more about the bearing of fruit. How is fruit born? It must be sown. In this case, we're talking about the Word. The sower sows the Word. Now, here's the question. What do we do when we're not sowing Word? Do you know what we consider sowing the Word today? This right here. You come and you listen. And I'm sowing the word, and you're hoping that if somebody's here and they're not born again, they'll be convicted in their heart, and they will get saved, and then we go about the rest of our lives. Ironically, though, a farmer, you know where a farmer plants his crops? In his field, not in his barn. He has to go to the field to produce his crop. He has to go to where the things are. It's kind of like fishing out of your toilet. If you catch something, you're probably not going to like it. (laughs) Squirrels with knives, (laughs) y'all. That's all I can say. Brown trout. Go to the lake. I mean, the thing is, is that we're out there and we're just doing stuff and we don't even know why we're doing it. We just do it because we've been told to do it or we thought we should do it. I'm a good person. I'm doing good things. I pray that the Lord will send somebody out to all those who are lost. Your heart should break for all of those who are lost. You think by writing a check and you're just sending money across the world, that's great. It's a good and noble thing that we should do, but that does not negate our responsibility here. We should be good soil. The problem is oftentimes we're not. We have convinced ourselves that we are, but we're truly not. Because we allow the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and anything else to creep in and take the place of God's mission for you and I. But we know what Jesus mandated. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, and he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Now this is interesting, because this is the mandate that Jesus gave. And in another place it says, go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Disciples aren't born, they are made. Who makes them? An individual, by taking them in and forming them. In Mark 16, verse 19, it says, So then after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they, being who? The disciples, went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Now here is the question that I am posing to you today, is how did the disciples know what to do? Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Before that, he says, but before you do, I need you to wait in Jerusalem because you're going to be endued with power from on high. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you'll be able to do all these things I just described. But what class did they sit through? This is, now listen, when the Spirit of God comes on you, here's what you can expect. This is what it's going to sound like. And guess what? There are all the things that you are going to do. How did they know? How did they know what to preach? How do they know when to preach? How do they know the proper way of laying on of hands? Have you ever asked these questions? Because they just kind of did stuff. Look in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. You guys are familiar with this. I think today's Pentecost Sunday if I'm not mistaken. That's a coincidence that we're going to read about this. But when the day of Pentecost had fully come. 
They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And as they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now I'm going to stop for a second. Were they prepared for that? If they were, I don't know how. Jesus didn't give them a step-by-step basis to follow here. It's what's going to happen, boys. They were just being obedient. Verse 5, and there were men or dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not these those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying, to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, he raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Now here is the question. How did Peter know to stand up and preach right then? How did Peter know what to preach? How did Peter get elected as the preacher in that moment? Have you ever thought about this? Because he just did it. Could you argue that he was moved by the Holy Spirit? You could argue that. It doesn't say that, but you could make that point. But where are the other guys? Why are they so quiet? Maybe he's just a better preacher than the rest of them. He goes on and he just begins to speak out of Joel and all of this. What led to this moment? Here's the thing and the point I'm trying to make, guys. Is that the reason they knew what to do and the reason they knew when to do it and the reason they knew how to do it is they had just spent three years every day watching Jesus do it. They watched Him teach and they heard Him preach and they watched Him heal. They watched Him die They watched him resurrect. They saw the compassion in his eyes. They watched him cry over Lazarus. He wasn't crying because Lazarus was dead. He was crying because the family was hurting. He knew what he was going to do. He knew from the moment that the word got to him what was going to happen. He even told them that it's better for you that we wait. We need to get to the fourth day. We've talked about that before. We're not going to go back into that. You see, Jesus made 12 disciples. How did he make them? Every day, they were with Him. Every word He spoke, every action He took, they were there. They heard Him. They watched Him lose His cool in the temple and make a whip. Some of us would be like, i got to get me one of those. They watched Him. Look at this. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and he taught them. And it goes into the whole beatitude thing. Guys, he did that over and over and over again. He'd open up his mouth and he would just teach them. Because he put a mandate to go and make disciples. You know how he showed them how to do it? Is he did it. This is the thing. You may not realize it, your entire life... You've been making disciples. The question is, is have you made them for God or for something else? In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching in the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. So what did the, the disciples see? They watched him do it. He was, they were there every single day. Every time somebody came to Jesus, they were around. They watched how he responded. In Matthew 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So they said, you know what? We should do what Jesus did. And that's what they did. Because think about it. We're going to read some passages today. 
But I want you to think about it from the perspective as that these guys spent three years every day, approximately three years, every single day, hearing every word Jesus spoke, seeing every action he took, every meal he ate. They knew when he went behind the tree to go to the bathroom. They knew everything that he was doing. And Jesus, in return, took every moment he could and used it as a type of teaching. Hey, look at this. See that fig tree over there? You see that mountain there? Watch. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. So Jesus is gone. Altogether, the number of the names is about 120. and said, men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased the field with the wages of iniquity and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem that the field is called in their own language, a keldama, which is the field of blood, where it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and let another take his office. Now, Again, Peter's eyes, all of them, they had their eyes open to the understanding of Scripture. But watch the criteria. They're going to replace Judas. Watch the criteria. Therefore, verse 21, of these men who have accompanied us all the time, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. What criteria did the next disciple have to make? They had to be with Jesus from the moment of his baptism to the moment of his ascension. Had to be there the entire time. Because he had done life with these guys, and they had seen him teach, and they'd seen him preach, and they'd seen him heal, and they watched him die, and they saw him after he resurrected. You couldn't be an apostle if you hadn't, because otherwise you may go off on your own tangent. It's like, well, let me tell you what I think. You know who cares what you think? You do. I care what God thinks. Let's look at Luke chapter 9, verse 1. Now, again, think of this as a perspective of Jesus discipling His disciples. So then He called His 12 disciples together. And he gave them power and authority over all the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So what did he just do? Who did he call? The 12 guys. They've been with him for a while. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go do what I've been doing. So he's training them. Fair enough. He said to them, take nothing for the journey. Staffs, bags, bread, money. Do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you stay, enter. Stay there or whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust of your feet as a testimony to get them against them. So they departed, and they went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Does that sound like what Jesus was doing? Sure does. Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, him being Jesus, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. Then he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city of Be called Bethsaida. But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who had need of healing. So when they returned, what did they do? Jesus probably took them aside to debrief them. All right, guys, let's talk about this. How did it go? We know in other parts they're all excited, like even the demons are subject to us in your name. So the multitudes followed him. People begin, begin getting a crowd. The disciples are now part of this. They're, they're not just kind of watchers, but they are taking action. They're doing things. And so Jesus began to preach the kingdom of God. Why? Because there was an opportunity right in front of him. And he healed all who were sick. Now let's go to verse 12. We're going to read for a little bit. When the day began to wear away, the twelve came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provision, for we are in a deserted place here. Now stop. This is the disciples' idea. Hey, Jesus, listen, it's been a long day. You need some rest. These guys are probably getting hungry. Just tell them to go on. That way they can go get, take care of their needs, and then you can get some sleep. Verse 13, he said to them, you give them something to eat. Now, you notice he didn't say, I will take care of this. He put that on them. 
And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to the disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so, and he made them sit down. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. So what's happened here? He said, listen, you feed them. They're trying to get them to go away. Jesus is like, no, we're not done. You feed them. So, well, we can't. This is what we have. Well, let me show you how we can. And then he says, as soon as he gets the, the, five, uh, the, the fish and the, the bread, he says, now, make them sit down in groups of 50. We're each going to go around and take care of this. Verse 18, and it happened as he was alone praying that his disciples joined him. So what was he doing? He was praying. What did his disciples do? They came with him. And he asked him, saying, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, you notice this. What was he doing? He was praying. But now he's going to teach them. Who do the crowds say that I am? And the answer said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah. And others say that one of the old prophets had risen again. Remember what Herod had said? These were things that were going around. Well, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, said, the Christ of God. That means the Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. So now he's warning them. He's like, who do the people say that I am? Well, this is who they say they are. Well, who do you say that I am? You're Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. You're the one that's been promised for thousands of years, the the, the long-awaited Messiah. You're finally here, and he tells them, don't say anything yet. I have to be rejected by the elders, by the scribes. I have to be put up, but I'll raise the third day. What's he doing? He's teaching them. He's taking this moment. He's teaching them. Verse 23, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man, will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now, what's he doing? He's teaching them once again. If anyone comes after me, you have to deny yourself. It's interesting, he says, you have to take up your cross daily. Did the disciples know how Jesus was going to die? No. No. He's foreshadowing this. You're picking up the instrument that crucifies your flesh, but you will live for me. If you desire to keep your life, this isn't for you, because following me will cost you your life, and it did cost all of them their lives. It only cost us Facebook friends, but he's warning them. It's going to cost you. Verse 28. It came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. Now, he took these three guys, and what did he do? We're going to go up and pray. What's he doing so far? He's been teaching. He's been healing with them. He sent them out. He's made them a part of the process. Now he's teaching them to pray. He's taking them with him. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. Behold, two men talked with him. Who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And then it happened as they were parting from him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, did Jesus tell them to take a nap? No. They just fell asleep. You know, prayer service went a little too long. So we're just going to kind of kick back, get a little nap, we'll be refreshed and all of that. What did they miss out on? Some pretty cool stuff, apparently. So he's got this idea that he wants to do. Verse 34, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they had kept quiet and told no one of those days any of the things that they had seen. So they've just experienced something cool. How did they experience it? They were always with him. They're always around him. They're seeing the things that happened to him. 
They're hearing from him. He's teaching them. They're watching the works that he has done. Verse 37, now it happened on the next day. When they had come down from the mountain, that a great multitude met them. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out, saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. And Jesus answered, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. That, then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. So he did what he always does. Did the disciples watch this happen? Sure did. They were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears, for, they, uh, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now, what did they watch happen? They watched him cast out this demon, heal this boy, hand him back. They're completely amazed, and what's he said? Let these words sink down into your ears. Once again, he tells them, I'm about to be betrayed by the hands of men. He is precursed. He's laying all of this out ahead of time, but they were afraid to ask him anything about it because they didn't know what it meant, and they were afraid to ask. Watch verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him. And he said, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you will be great. So what happened here? They're arguing. Because remember, what are they waiting on? They're thinking Jesus is going to set up his kingdom. He's going to overthrow Rome. And they're going to be autonomous once again, be able to do whatever they want. He's going to rule on the throne of David. And when he does that, listen, I'm going to be, I've got my spot over here and all of that. And it's going to be good. I'm going to sit at his right hand. You sit at his left hand. You, you can sweep the garage. I got the rest of this, okay? And so Jesus is knowing exactly what they thought begins to lay this out, this whole concept. 49, now John answered and said, Master, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow with us. You can't use Jesus' name. You're not one of us. What did Jesus do? Jesus said to him, do not forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side. So here it is that John made a statement, and Jesus corrected it, didn't he? John's like, listen, no, 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 you're not on our team. You don't get to do that. Only we do. And Jesus brought correction. Verse 51, Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered the village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set to the journey of Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Now what did they just say? I mean, understand the words that just came out of their mouth. We kind of glaze over this a little bit. These Samaritans didn't receive you, Jesus. Let us pray that you destroy all of them. Literally what they just said. How dare they not receive Messiah? How dare they not receive their king? So what did he do? Verse 55. He turned and he rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life, but to save them. So they went to another village. So here it is again. What's he doing? He's bringing correction. They had these ideas, off-the-wall ideas. Now imagine, for a moment, if Jesus hadn't been there. If they just showed up. What would have happened? Who knows? But Jesus is always with them, and he's always bringing these corrections. Verse 57, now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, well, follow me. And he said, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. Now let me explain this because this gets confused a lot. It wasn't like dad just died and his body's laying there rotting to be buried. That's not how it worked. They would immediately bury him. There's something called an ossuary. And about a year after the body was buried, the body had decomposed to the point that they could go up, they would dig up the grave, they would take the bones, they would place them in this ossuary box, and then they would rebury it. 
That's what's happening here. So there's not some dude rotting on the corner of the street here. Jesus isn't that harsh. All right? He says, let the dead bury their dead. You have a job to do. This was a Jewish tradition. This was nothing mandated by God. You go and preach the kingdom. Another also said, verse 61, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. And Jesus said to them, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is it fit for the kingdom of God? So in other words, if you're out there, you're planting and you're driving down the road and not in these new planting tractors that drive themselves. And I don't even know farmers are more like computer techs today than they are anything else. But if you look back, you kind of get your rows a little squirrely. You don't look back, you go, you keep moving. What's he doing? He's constantly telling them, like, okay, you say you want to do that, and you can, but here's the deal. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them two by two before his face in every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the tr- harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money, uh, money bag, knapsack, or sandals. Greet no one along the road, but whatever house you enter, say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. And if not, it will return to you and remain the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to the house whatever city you enter they receive you each eat such things as they set before you and heal the sick there and say to them the kingdom of God has come near you but whatever city you enter and do not receive go out into his streets and say the very dust of your city which clings to us wipe off against you nevertheless know this that the kingdom of God has come near you but I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than it was for that city woe to you to raise and woe to you Bethsaida for if the mighty works that have been done and you had been done in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented long ago sitting in sackcloth and ashes but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you and you Capernaum who are exalted to heaven will be brought down to Hades, he who hears you hears me. He who rejects you rejects me. He who rejects me rejects him who sent me. That's the mission. You 70, you go. If they receive you, preach. If they don't receive you, preach. But then move on. If they hear you, they heard me. If they reject you, they reject me. And he who rejects me rejects the Father. What is that language? That is ambassadorship language. You are my representative. I have been teaching you, preparing you, equipping you to send you out. So if they reject you, it's not you, it's me. If they receive you, it's not you, it's me. In fact, it has nothing to do with you. It's all about me. And if they reject me, then they reject the Father. Get it? Verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. What are they excited about? The authority that came with the position. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, I'm going to stop there. When Jesus said, I give you the authority to do this, what does that imply? You now have the ability to, to do this. You have now been equipped. Because if they reject you, they reject me. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. And in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Now keep that phrase in mind. Revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. So what happens? They come back. They're excited. They're excited. Look at this authority we have. This is incredible. And he says, no, 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 forget the authority. That's secondary. That comes with the position you have as being my disciple. Don't rejoice in this, but rejoice that you are my disciple. And then he begins to pray. And he says, you've revealed it to babes. Who's the babes? These are these young people, right? These aren't old people. These are his, his 70 apostles at this point, the disciples that he's been working with. He turns to them after he prays, and he says, 
Blessed are you because you get to see what everybody has been waiting for. And you've gotten to hear what everybody has been waiting for. So this is good. What's he doing? He's constantly just pouring into him. Verse 25, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. You love how it says lawyer? <laughs> Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So how does he respond? He doesn't tell him. He questions him. What is written in the law? And what is your reading of it? He said, well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, well, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, still the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, well, then who is my neighbor? Okay, good old lawyer, making this more complicated than it needs to be, more expensive too, I'm sure. Probably handed Jesus a bill shortly after this. And Jesus answered, said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed him, leaving him half dead. By chance, a certain priest came down the road he saw him, he passed to the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he had arrived at the place, came and looked and passed to the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I come, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was the neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, this is interesting. Why didn't Jesus just flat out just tell him the answer? What do you have to do to be saved? Well, this is what you got to do. He answers in these stories. Why? Because he's literally getting him to think. I can give you the answer, or I can ask you the question and let you discover the answer. What sticks and which is more profound? The discovering the answer. Now look at verse 38. Now it happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered, said to her, Marcia, 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 you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. Priorities. You see, Jesus is simply teaching by doing. His disciples watched him. They heard him. They saw everything that he did. Now, I said this before. I'm going to say this again. Everybody in this room has made a disciple. Everybody. In one way, you've made a disciple because there are people that you've either worked with, family members that, you, that you've lived with or whatever, that have heard every word out of your mouth, seen every action you take, and you have to ask the question, in doing so, have I exemplified Christ in every word that I say and every action I take? But in a greater way, if you've had children, you have made disciples. Your children will reach a point in time where they've got to make a decision for themselves of what they're going to do and how they're going to live. And you're ultimately not responsible for that. But your children act like you. Did your parents ever say to you, I hope someday you have a kid that acts just like you? Or am I alone in this? Because maybe I am. And guess what I got? A handful. The thing is, is that every one of us who's had kids, we have many disciples that have run around our house because they say what you say. My mom told me this story. I was very young. I think I was about two. We're walking through a Kmart. I'm in the cart. I had done something I wasn't supposed to do. Yeah, pretty common, commonplace thing, apparently, and I don't know what she said, but I guess I, at the top of my lungs, said, no, mom, don't beat my behind. However, I did not say behind, and I yelled it, and my mom was mortified because in that moment, she realized that every time I was about to get spanked, what did she say? That's what she said. She'd made a disciple. I was doing what she did. I was saying what she said. Now, that's a silly example, but think about it. 
That is what our kids do. And truth be told is our co-workers' idea of how Christ lives on this earth is modeled by you and I. How we respond when we're at work, when we're sitting around drinking coffee with people, when we're on the golf course, wherever we are, we are the example of Christianity in the world today. So when people act and say a certain thing, they base it somewhat off of the way that we have lived our lives. Because they see and they hear. The reason the disciples knew what to say, when to say it, how to respond, is because they spent three years learning. Every single day, they were with them. And literally, that is how disciples are made today. Instead of that, we have now turned it into a class where you got to go and you got to do some different stuff at a church. But it is literally taking somebody by the hand and like, let's walk down this journey together. And sometimes we don't like that as the individual being disciple. Because sometimes we have to rebuke. And sometimes we have to get on to them and say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you thinking? What was going through your ever-loving mind? How did you come to that conclusion? Does that sound like anything you've said to your kids before? But we struggle with that. And people who really struggle with it are people that we think at some point we reach a certain age where we no longer have people and put ourselves under people who can pour into us spiritually. And you'll reach a certain level of success. Like say that you, you have a bunch of employees, you own a business or something like that. Everybody feeds off of what you say and what you do. But you know what doesn't happen? Nobody's telling you what to do. And it's really hard to put yourself in a position to where you are still being discipled. Really hard. And the thing is, is that that never ceases. We're always growing in that. You see, Jesus was always teaching by doing. Look what he says. A few more verses here and we'll be done. John chapter 13, verse 31. So then he had gone out. Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children. Now, who is he talking to? These are the same disciples he called babes earlier. I, share, I shall be with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How did they know how to love one another? They watched him do it every single day. They will know you are my disciple by the way that you love these people. You love them like I did. You teach them, you preach to them, you heal them. You're willing to lay down your life for the message that you stand for, the convictions that you have. You don't let anything turn you from that. You tell them the truth. Sometimes that includes rebuking. We don't like that. In John 13, verse 36, it says, Simon Peter said to him, O Lord, where are you going? Jesus said, where I am going. You cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus said, will you lay down your life for me? I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. You see, Peter had an idea of himself that Jesus knew wasn't correct, and Jesus just kind of laid it out there. That doesn't sound very loving. Oh, Peter, that's so wonderful. Thank you so much. And then he's like, will you lay down your life? Because let me tell you, buddy, what's about to happen. Mark chapter 8, verse 27, now Jesus and his disciples went down to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and the road asked, uh, on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? He said, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say one of the prophets. He said, well, who do you say I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, and he strictly warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach the Son of Man of many things that he must suffer, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Or he spoke the word openly, then Peter took him aside and rebuked him. I didn't put on this. I skipped the line. Let me go back. He began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes to be killed after three days and rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Do you see what's happening here? Rebuke is a strong word. He looked at Jesus and said, I don't think so. And when he had turned around, he looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. 
Now that is strong words. That doesn't sound loving by today's definition. But he had to be truthful. Peter got a little too big for his britches, stood up and said, let me tell you something. This is not going to happen. This will never happen. Peter said, I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus like, will you? Will you really? I don't think so. Luke chapter 6, verse 39, he's spoken a parable to him. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. What did Jesus spend three years doing? Perfectly training them. You're going to be just like me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, this is Paul talking, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. Even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and division among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For one says, I am of Paul, another, I am Apollos. Are you not carnal? Now, what is the church in Corinth? A bunch of Paul's disciples. And what's he doing? He's pulling out the ping pong paddle and whipping there behind. That's what he's doing. I couldn't speak to you as spiritual. I had to speak to you as carnal, as a babe in Christ. You should be on solid food, but you're not. You're on milk because you can't take. So here we go. He lays it out there for him. That's not very loving. He should have just gingerly brought them in and just said this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into whom? Him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every joint, by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth for the body, for the edifying of itself in love. The trend here is the church needs to grow up. We're too carnal. We don't look different. We don't sound different. We don't act different. We are out there doing the same stuff with a spiritual spin. We feel good about our accomplishments. We feel good because we go and maybe we talk to somebody. And yet Jesus put these guys out on a mission. And yet here we are today as the church. And I don't necessarily mean this church, mind you. We have got to get past that. We're thinking as the church as a whole. If each individual gets the mission of Christ, it will transform the church in America. It will transform America itself. And it will transform the world because where we go, the rest of the world follows. And as sad as that is today, you can see those trends all over the globe. We have got to grow up. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we, uh, that we know Him. If we keep His commandments, He who says, I know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. Whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we ought to know that we are in Him. He who says He abides in Him ought Himself also to walk just as He walked. Well, how did John know this? Because he was around a bunch of guys that watched it happen. He watched Jesus walk. How do they know what to do? He watched them do it. Chapter 4, verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may with boldness in the day of, have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so are we in this world. Don't you wish that was true? Because as He is, we are not. We're not anything like Him. We are too caught up. And what people say, think, how they feel. We have a mission. We've lost that heart. You know why? We've lost the compassion. We think for some reason that I know the Bible says that greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. But that doesn't count for me. That counts for other people. That that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells and keeps my mortal body going. But that's not me. That's the other people. But I'll just joke around and I'll just do life and I'll worry more about everything else. And this will just kind of come as it goes and it is what it is. The thing is, is we as the church need to grow up. One more, Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. It says, at that time, Jesus answered said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and made prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father... 
For so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And the one to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Come to me, all you are a labor and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You are to be yoked side by side with Jesus on his mission. He came and demonstrated the work that we are to be doing in every part of his life. You have been mandated to go and make disciples in all the world. And you have been doing it. The question is, have you been making those disciples for Christ or for something else? It ultimately doesn't matter today because whatever has been done is done. Repentance can be had, forgiveness can be given, all of that. You can go back and correct. But we lead by example. I was teaching a bunch of college kids and, uh, when I was out there in Hastings. And they would come in and we, were, we would sit down and we would talk about everything. Everything in life, whatever is going on. And one of the things I was doing is I was teaching them how you pivot a conversation that you're having with anybody that you meet. And you just turn it to the gospel. In one way or another, you look for those opportunities. They're there, you just got to look for them. And so this one young man, his name was Michael, he was a great guy. He was not the sharpest tool in the shed, okay? Right, his crayon in the box, whatever you want to say, it wasn't him. Loved the guy, strong as an ox, not smart, okay? Good dude. And he was a college student there, and he, and he was always around, he was always hanging out. And at that point, I was putting in sprinkler systems and doing a bunch of stuff. And uh, he was looking for some work. I said, well, you know what, man, I could use a hand a couple of days if you want to come help me. He's like, man, that'd be great. And so we're out there working, and we're just talking about anything and everything and stuff. And we decided to go to Applebee's for lunch that day. Hey, you ever been to Applebee's? It's wonderful. At least it used to be. And so we're going in there, it's just the two of us. We're kind of dirty because we've been digging in the, the ground because we're putting in a sprinkler system. And uh, we had, we get up there and they're like, well, would you like a table, a booth, or do you want to sit at the bar? And I'm like, well, it really doesn't matter. She's like, well, if you sit at the bar, uh, you get free chips and salsa. And I'm like, sold. There we shall sit. I like free anything, but especially chips and salsa. And so we go and sit there and we, we're just talking. The lady comes over. She's like, oh, well, can I get you guys a drink and all of that? So we get sodas and we're just sitting there talking. And uh, she had this thing on her shirt and I, I couldn't tell what it was, but I could, I could see it was a symbol or it was something. And I said, I'm curious, what does that mean? And she's like, oh, I got this from my brother. You know, he had joined this Mormon church and all of that. And she's like, it was really interesting. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. So your brother's a Mormon? And she said, yeah. And I said, that's cool. I said, what about you? She's like, you know, I don't really know. I said, well, have you ever thought about, you know, what this is? And I'm just pivoting a conversation. We haven't taken our order yet. And so for 45 minutes, we went back and forth. I'm just asking her questions. I'm prodding stuff. And I said, well, I, I would, you know, encourage you. I said, I'll come back tomorrow. And she adds me on Facebook, and, and she messaged me several times and stuff. And I began sharing the gospel with her. And we get done, and we get back out in my truck. And he looks at me. He's like, that was so easy. I'm like, I know. He's like, but... I don't talk good. I'm like, or use grammar properly, apparently. I said, I said, you don't have to. Be interested in what they're doing. Now, that moment changed something in him because two weeks later, he did the exact same thing at a restaurant that he went to on his own. And what changed? He just watched it happen. Now, I wasn't out trying to demonstrate this. That wasn't my goal. We were just there. The opportunity was there. I just jumped on it. But because he was with me, you see, that is what discipleship is. We have little disciples around us all the time. And you love on them and you pour into them and you, and you provide for them. But you know where you can't do that from? If they're over there and you're over here. We have to make it our mission to do what Jesus did every single day. In order to do that, we as a church have got to grow up. We can't be carnal. We can't be babes in Christ. We can't put on this facade. We, we can't have our lips near Him and our hearts far away. And unfortunately, that is where a lot of us are today, is that the church today has lost the heart of God. We have now traded the power of the Holy Spirit for the gliss and the glamour and the notoriety that goes along with it. We've got to get back on mission. So let's pray. We're going to get out of here. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You that You have sent your son to live a life example 
for us. That we can do what He did and say what He said and follow the way that He led, Lord, and that in everything that we are out there doing the same work. Not losing heart, not losing focus, Lord, not, not out there trying to make our names known, Lord, but to make Yours known. That every day is an opportunity that we will not waste, that we will not squander, but we will rise up and live our lives wholly dedicated to You as a living sacrifice, a sweet-smelling aroma. Lord, that we will no longer justify in our minds these things that we think are good, but that we will follow You and chase You and do everything that You have commanded us to do. And so, Lord, today we repent for anything that we have missed it on, but that our hearts are being broken towards Yours and that You are drawing us closer and closer to you, that every part of our life would bring glory to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.